You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. These are the words of the covenant that Yahweh commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that Yahweh did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day Yahweh has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am Yahweh your God. And when you came to this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land, and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. You are standing today, all of you, before Yahweh your God the heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of Yahweh your God, which Yahweh your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God, as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before Yahweh our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed, and you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from Yahweh our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Yahweh will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of Yahweh and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and Yahweh will blot out his name from under heaven. And Yahweh will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity, in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land, will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which Yahweh has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which Yahweh overthrew in his anger and wrath, all the nations will say, 
Why has Yahweh done this to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of Yahweh, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of Yahweh was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And Yahweh uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 675 of this podcast. Today is Monday, July 31st, 2023. Also, my oldest son's 16th birthday. Hard to believe he is 16 years old. Josiah David Mullet. Happy birthday to you. And man, I remember, well, 16 years ago today when you were born. I remember distinctly not being able to grasp that I was a father, not really fully, truly like I felt like I should probably understand. I should probably comprehend that I am a father. Seeing Josiah born, it was like, wow, man, this is unreal. This is amazing. (laughs) Is this real life? Am I dreaming? But 16 years have gone by. He is certainly not a newborn He is a young man. He can look me in the eye. He thinks deeply and he's figuring out what it is he's going to be about. And that's great. And that's exemplary. And it's a good example for others as well. We are so glad that Josiah is our oldest son. We're so glad that we have all these sons that we do and our daughter Evelyn and that we're expecting another son in November, but Josiah, as one among so many brothers, I'm glad that he is our oldest son, and I know that God has a purpose for that. He has a purpose for that birth order, and there's a purpose for each and every one of our children that coincides with somehow, some way, Josiah being the oldest son in our family. So the Lord bless him. And us, as we encourage him, as we support him, as we build him up, edify him, train him, come alongside him, work together with him, may the Lord bless him, may the Lord bless us. But let's talk about Deuteronomy 29. That was the reading. Deuteronomy chapter 29. There's a couple of passages here that I want to touch on. The rest is all good, of course, but there are a couple of selections here that really catch my attention. One of them being starting in verse 18, verses 18 to 20. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from Yahweh our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root 
bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Now that right there is an interesting way to frame it and an interesting way to describe the idolatry that is eventually going to incur wrath and judgment on Israel, to call it a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, almost as though the weed has been chopped down to ground level, but the roots were not pulled out. And so those roots in due time are going to sprout a new plant that bears fruit in its season, but that fruit is not good to eat. That fruit is like the forbidden fruit in Eden after a fashion. This is poisonous fruit. It brings death. It brings a curse. It's bitter fruit. And yet the people are going to eat it anyways. There are going to be individuals, man, woman. There are going to be groups, clans, tribes that want to eat the fruit of this bitter, poisonous root. And what will be the outcome? The outcome will be Yahweh will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of Yahweh and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him and Yahweh will blot out his name from under heaven. So you have this, right? You have this idea of being forgotten, being erased in terms of the collective memory, the memory of this people, you will be no more. That's a scary kind of legacy, that there would be no legacy. You're not even going to be a warning. There's going to be nothing about you that endures. If you veer off and worship the gods of these other nations, the idea that this is a root, that it's in the heart, that it's in the mind, it's in there already, and that Moses is saying, beware, right? Watch out, be aware that this is a thing. Keep your head on a swivel. This is a thing to look out for. And it's not out in the open right now. Maybe you're doing what you're supposed to be doing in an external way, but it's in there, right? It's in your hearts. It's in your minds to do this. And it will come about at a certain point. You'll want to go back to the familiar. You'll want to go back to the worship of the gods of the nations, doing what everyone else has been doing who is not God's people, keeping up with the Joneses. You're going to want to do that. Beware. Watch out. There are consequences, negative consequences. God doesn't shrug. He's not like whatever. Fine. No. The anger of Yahweh and his jealousy will smoke against that man who does these things, who blesses himself and his heart, which is to say there's a self-deception there. There is a self-talk that's not true. I will be safe. No, you won't. (laughs) I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. No, you won't. No, that's extraordinarily dangerous. Don't be stubborn. Don't be stubborn because stubbornness is what? A rejection of what is true and what is good because it's not what you want. 
to say. It's not what you want to believe. It's not what you want to do. It's not how you want to live. That's what stubbornness is. Even if it's true, what somebody's telling you, you're not going to be persuaded. You're not going to be reasoned with. That's stubbornness. Even if it's a good thing that they're telling you, hey, you should do this thing. Stubbornness is, no, I don't want to. Just because you told me to do what you just told me to do, I don't want to do it. Even though it's a good thing, I'm going to be stubborn about this. And this is not the same thing as being steadfast or showing perseverance. So be careful when you're trying to identify it in other people or in yourself. The idea is not to be timid. The idea is to be bold. And some people who are not bold, if they see you being bold, they may be provoked to jealousy. They may envy that and look for a way of dismissing your confidence, your boldness, your assertiveness, trying to water it down. Or in you, there may be a stubbornness that tries to identify other people who are steadfast. They are what they're about. They know what they're about. They are about it. And it is true and it is good, but you're going to call them stubborn because you want them to do something else. You want to inject doubt, misgivings, either in them or about them for other people. Be careful about that. But stubbornness, right? Stubbornness has to do with doing the not good thing and refusing to do the good thing, refusing to turn away from doing the not good thing. Stubbornness has to do with saying the not true thing or refusing to say the true thing, but it's objectively true and you won't be persuaded. Don't be stubborn. Don't be stubborn. Also interesting here, this last verse, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Verse 29 here is important to remember It's important for me to remember, for instance, for example, when I at times want to say there's a mystery in the way that this truth and this other truth in God's word are both true at the same time. And let's just embrace that tension and be willing to admit that we don't fully understand it. Martin Luther in his book, The Bondage of the Will, in response to Erasmus of Rotterdam, very memorably quotes this verse, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. He quotes this verse in reply to Erasmus saying that we can't really fully know how election, predestination, and free will all go together. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Martin Luther is very impatient with that, and he says, The secret things belong to Yahweh our God. That's true. But the things that are revealed belong to us. I personally think Luther was being too impatient. He should have had more of a nuanced response in my view. But then again, he's not wrong to bring that passage to bear. It does pertain. That's a good point. The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, which is to say, Whatever the text doesn't say, we may speculate about, we may wonder about, but those things belong to God, which is to say, he knows, he understands. We know in part, as Paul says, we prophesy in part, we see now through a glass dimly, 
What's on the other side of that dim glass, that frosted glass? It's fuzzy to us, but it's very clear to God. God knows. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law, which is to say something very similar to all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. How is it profitable if we say, well, I can't possibly know what that means. I don't know what that means. I don't understand. How is it profitable that the man of God might be complete equipped for every good work if at every difficulty, at every challenging passage, we say, I don't know what that means. And we just give up. There could be a stubbornness to that. I don't understand what it means. And you can't make me try to understand what it means. Ooh, wait a second. How is the man of God supposed to be made complete, equipped for every good work? If that's the attitude, that can't be the attitude. So in sum, I look at this, right? I look at this passage. I take these two interesting pieces together And I think, I think this business about beware, lest there be among you a person or a group whose heart is turning away, a man, woman, clan, tribe, whose heart is turning away from Yahweh to go and serve the gods of those other nations. I think that taken together with the secret things belonging to Yahweh, our God, gives us a more robust and healthier picture of what it looks like when that goes awry and also what it takes for it to go right. There's a contentment and a humility that you have to have, you have to embrace, you have to get, I think in some sense, it's a cause and an effect of committing yourself to God, committing your soul to God. It's a cause and an effect that we would have a humility to be content that God knows what we don't know what has not been revealed to us in his word. And at the same time that we would keep in mind what he has revealed to us in his word, what has been breathed out for correction, for instruction, for rebuke, for exhortation, which is to say encouragement, we would benefit from meditating on. And you could say, well, here's what it says. What does it mean? And some passages are just difficult. They're difficult to understand. If you have humility, if you come to the text with humility, when it's very plain what it says and what it means, you're going to just agree with that. And you're going to say, well, that's true, right? That has to be true. And when it's not clear what it means, and it's a difficult passage, you're going to have the humility to say, I trust that God knows what that means, but what has God called me to be about? What has God called me to do And while I'm doing what God has called me to do, I'll keep on pondering and meditating on, thinking on what it is that I don't understand in his word, what I don't understand about him. That's the way of wisdom. That's where life abundant is to be found. That's what it means to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And that's actually also, that's what enables us to love our neighbor as ourself. That's what makes it possible. That's the prereq. The prerequisite to loving our neighbor as we love ourselves is to love God with everything we are. Do what he said. Do what he called you to. Do what he commanded you to do. Do what your purpose is here for you to do. And be steadfast in that. But don't be stubborn in your heart and self-willed 
to where you are your own God. Let's get to some current events items, though. Let's talk about, for starters, a article, a report, a news item in the Billings Gazette from July 12th by Sam Wilson, an alert that wolf hunting regs allowing infrared imaging violate Montana law judge rules. A Helena judge has ruled that hunting wolves using thermal imaging technology was not explicitly allowed by a 2021 law that expanded when and how the animals can be legally killed on private land. In a partial victory for a pair of environmental groups, Lewis and Clark County District Judge Michael McMahon's July 5th summary judgment found the Montana Fish and Wildlife Commission straight outside its authority when it gave hunters the ability to pursue wolves using infrared technology for hunting on private land. The lawsuit was filed in 2021 by Trap Free Montana and Wolves of the Rockies and named the commission, the state of Montana, and the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks as defendants. The Montana legislature passed several laws in 2021 to make it easier to hunt wolves, including Senate Bill 314, which authorized the hunting of wolves on private lands outside of daylight hours with the use of artificial light or night vision scopes. The commission, tasked with implementing new hunting laws, subsequently issued rules that also included thermal imaging in the list of allowed hunting technologies. Quote, it does not require particularly deep or intensive legal analysis to see that where the legislature authorized two specific technologies to hunt wolves at night on private land, artificial light, night vision, the commission went farther and authorized a third thermal imaging, McMahon wrote. The judge sided with the state on another argument, however, finding that a law setting penalties for the illegal use of infrared scopes doesn't ban all use of the technology. Instead, he called the law a sentence enhancement. Indeed, the statute can still apply not only to infrared scopes, but also projected artificial light and night scopes if the animal is taken illegally for some other reason. McMahon wrote, noting that the technology could enhance a sentence for hunting wolves, quote, without the landowner's permission or from a vehicle or in town, end quote. The defendants had also sought to get the lawsuit dismissed as moot since the rules set by the commission are only good for one hunting season and have already expired since the lawsuit was filed. There wasn't any meaningful relief the court could offer to the plaintiffs, the state argued. But McMahon wrote that the issue still warranted a ruling under an exception to mootness rules that allows a case to move forward if there's a good chance the defendant will repeat the action being challenged. Given the timeliness inherent in a civil case, quote, the fastest possible judicial resolution of a civil case challenging the regulations will inevitably take longer than the regulations are in effect, end quote. Casey York, the president and founder of Trap Free Montana, said in a Wednesday email the group was satisfied with McMahon's ruling, quote, although war had been declared on wolves in the GOP 2021 legislature, the FNW commission exacerbated it, York wrote, quote, FWP threw salt on the wound by taking liberty to worsen the regulations we had to try and stop this unjust runaway train to kill wolves at whatever cost, end quote. A spokesman for Fish, Wildlife, and Parks said the department is still reviewing the ruling. Now, a few thoughts on this, just briefly. One, as someone who is a native of Montana, I have lived on both sides of the state and spent a fair amount in the middle, which was not just for travel back and forth. Billings, Montana is where we, before moving to Colorado, would go for our doctoring 
And if someone needed to be picked up or dropped off at the airport because they were coming to visit us, say, for instance, in-laws, that was Billings. That was a trip to Billings, four and a half hours from Sydney, Montana. And besides that, I've spent a fair amount of time hunting in the middle part of the state. I've been out in the wilderness, whether for work or for hunting or for hanging out with family and friends. I've spent a fair amount of time out and about. And when you're out and about and you hear a howl, you very much want to have firearms on you that are loaded, that you know how to use. But what about if you're not going to carry a gun with you at all times? What about if you're a rancher or a farmer and you have children and you're not going to have your kids running around with firearms, young children? What about if you have pets? What if you have livestock? What then? What then when there are wolves in your area? What then when there are wolves in the vicinity? There's a pack of wolves or there's a lone wolf. When you see that animal or when you have an opportunity, that's when you want to take it. When you have the firearm, when you can see the animal, that's when you want to eliminate the wolf. But these environmentalist groups they romanticize the wolf. And inherently, this is of a piece with the push to abolish fossil fuels, to reduce Earth's population, to reduce not just a carbon footprint, but to reduce environmental impact, to make that the measure of whether we're doing it right, whether man is living at harmony with nature is measured by, is there any environmental impact? So wolves were reintroduced. This has been a very unpopular decision with more conservative Montanans. Farmers and ranchers for sure are opposed to this. I haven't ever met one that was like, oh yeah, that's fine. No big deal. It's a really big deal. Wolves are no joke. And a pack of wolves is no joke. So plainly, I have no sympathy for the environmentalist groups that brought the lawsuit And I have no sympathy for this judge who made the ruling. Technically, you could say, oh, well, infrared imaging was not in the original legislation. And so, aha, yep, we got you there. Oh, come on. What was the intent, right? What was the point? And why are you so on about protecting the wolves? Hmm? Why do you care so much about the wolves? That's an important question that the environmentalist types will answer with something about how the ecosystem needs to be balanced in order for wolves to be present. You have to have other things in place as well, like, for instance, animals for them to eat. They are carnivores. Large herd animals like elk, deer. But then here's the thing. What if you introduce wolves from a different area that were not native to this area, what if those wolves are so successful that they start running out of, they start severely diminishing the population of wild game and they start going after people's pets and their livestock and their children and they themselves? That's not a high priority to the people who typically are the environmentalist types who don't live out in the country. They live in the cities. They live in the cities and they have a romantic view 
of the country as a place that they visit on holidays, but that they can go home from anytime they want. Personally, I think this is dumb. I would love to see the Montana state legislature update the legislation so as to include infrared imaging. I think that the headline also from the Billings Gazette is, as we find very often, unfortunately, misleading and deceptive to say that wolf hunting regs allowing infrared imaging violate Montana law. That's a stretch. To say that they're not in, right, the infrared imaging devices are not in the laws, that's what it is. And you could say, well, so then you're not protected in using this, but then it feels like a game of gotcha, obviously. It is a game of gotcha, obviously. And we should think about what's the underlying premise? What's the underlying premise and how does this affect people who live in rural parts of the state. If the big idea is to give the wolves a chance, right? Give them a sporting chance because that's somehow ethical or that's more moral. I mean, at the end of the day, whatever you're using, if it's legal to kill the wolves, it should be legal for you to see the wolf that you're going to be shooting and killing. If the idea is this wolf needs to be eliminated, then that's what it is. And that's what it is. Now, if Some people really want there to be these wolves. Well, keep them away from the folks who are going to be concerned about their own safety and the safety of their animals and the people they're responsible for. You want the wolves to make a comeback? Okay, put them somewhere where they're not going to threaten your neighbors out in the country. And if those are not your neighbors, well, then maybe you should just butt out, right? Isn't that a curious thing? Isn't that just the oddest business about so much of these conservation efforts? It's people from not in that area. It's people who don't depend for a living at all, at all on living in the country, farming, ranching, mining, logging. They don't depend on any of that. And they don't know anybody who has or does But they are so interested in preserving the environment. And of course, they're always at odds with the people who are interested in preserving their own safety and the ability of their neighbors and loved ones, their family and friends and themselves to make a living. Again and again, it comes back to that. But again and again, actually, this ends up being conservatives versus liberals. This becomes, on the one hand, those who want to preserve the environment and a state of nature as the ideal, particularly a state of nature wherein man has not industrialized and modernized and progressed and built and refined and harvested and sold and consumed. They want the state of nature and they see that as good. They're trying to get back to the Garden of Eden, ultimately, whether they would admit it or they would think of it that way. It's not that way. You can't get there from here going that direction using that means, by the way. But on the other hand, you have those who are trying to preserve a tradition of being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it. And that is to say that filling the earth and subduing it means asserting dominance over the beasts of the field, 
If those beasts happen to be predators, well then, asserting dominance in the form of eliminating them is appropriate. It would be great if our laws reflected the appropriateness of that more fully instead of, as it feels, coming from Montana, growing up in Montana, as it feels, environmentalist groups, especially people from out of state coming in, thinking that they are these crusaders, restoring earth to a pre-fall condition and just chipping away, grinding away every chance they get at the folks who have been living there for decades or centuries and their ability to maintain their way of life. And all the while, it's kind of funny, the same folks who want to be conserving the environment and they hold in low regard farming, ranching, logging, mining, oil and gas production in these wilderness areas, these remote rural country areas, those same folks will at length deride the initial white settlers who came out from out east in particular to settle places like Montana, Wyoming, displacing Native Americans, indigenous peoples, making war with, having war made against them, but then making war right back and more successfully. They'll deride that presumption that we knew better, right? Coming out here, settling this land, displacing those who were on it, who were making their living, we knew better. But then what are these conservationists, these environmentalists doing? They're doing the same kind of a thing and saying, we know better than you guys, but because ethnicity, race per se, is not a factor, they're completely blind to the hubris and the contempt that is dehumanizing and gives them a kind of blank check, or so they think, but it doesn't really. There's a stubbornness about it, and it would be great if more of the judges in the state of Montana refused to participate in these out-of-state, in particular, efforts instead of affirming them, emboldening them, rewarding them. I think this was a silly ruling. Hopefully, the Republican legislature follows it up by amending the laws to include infrared imaging. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Switching gears on a related note, though, NASA's Earth Observatory website has a series called World of Change, and there's a blog post or an article. I suppose it depends on how you look at it. There's an article I want to talk with you a little bit about, about global temperatures. This article I looked up because I'm seeing headlines here and there, say, for instance, to do with the temperature of the water off the coast of the tip of Florida for a couple of days or for a little while this year and how that has various internationalists saying we need to rebrand climate change again. It was global warming and then they changed it up. They played some games with language. They said, let's just call it climate change because it's the gift that keeps on giving as a piece by Aaron McIntyre over the blaze so well explained. So very well explained. I talked about that here recently on the podcast. But climate change, they want to rebrand again, 
or they're trying it out, they're testing it out in speeches, they're going to rebrand it. Global boiling, right? Global warming didn't quite work, didn't quite fit because not everything can be explained by saying that the earth is warming. So they said, let's just make it abstract. Let's call it climate change. And it's the gift that keeps on giving. You'll never run out of climate change so long as there are seasons and there are weather patterns that are not static, which has been the case forever, by the way. Well before the positivists, the Darwinians, the materialists, suppose man was active in a big way on the planet, the climate was changing. Let's remember that, shall we? But now they're going to say global boiling is a crisis. And here is NASA, the Earth Observatory website for nasa.gov telling us about global temperatures. And so I'll read for you some of this because we don't want to ignore it. What they're saying, you have to listen to what the people on the other side are saying. If you disagree with the push to combat climate change, the push to become carbon neutral, if you disagree with that, and I certainly do, as somebody who's worked in oil and gas for going on 12 years, going on a dozen years, this is how I provide for my family. And oh, by the way, this is how it's possible for you to provide for your family in the majority of cases, even if you don't think of it like that, you probably commute to and from work with fossil fuels. And if you don't, if you ride a bike or you walk, you're still generating quite a lot of your electricity, probably from fossil fuels. And even if you're not, there are so many products that are made with plastics. It's a very, very small percentage of people in the West who are not dependent on fossil fuels. And the folks who want to combat climate change, their ideal is not just less fossil fuels, harvesting, refining, utilization. Their ideal is less human impact on the environment with the ideal being zero impact because it's this Rousseauian idea. It's a Rousseauian philosophy of the state of nature being the ideal moral condition of not just man, but the planet. Man's relationship with the environment should be as close as possible to that of the animals who don't burn fossil fuels, in case you haven't noticed. But let's take a look at this article, this blog post over at NASA's website for the Earth Observatory, starting from the top. Air temperatures on Earth have been rising since the Industrial Revolution, while natural variability plays some part. Thank you. That's what I was just saying. The preponderance of evidence indicates that human activities, particularly emissions of heat-trapping greenhouse gases, are mostly responsible for making our planet warmer. That's not true, though. That, that's, By the way, that's not true. It's not accurate. Not from my researches, not from my studies. That's not true. According to an ongoing temperature analysis led by scientists at NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, GISS, the average global temperature on Earth has increased by at least 1.1 degrees Celsius, 1.9 degrees Fahrenheit. Since 1880, the majority of the warming has occurred since 1975 at a rate of roughly 0.15 or 0.20 Celsius per decade. The maps above, which you can't see, but I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go and check them out. The maps above show temperature anomalies in five-year increments since 1880. Click on the arrow to run the animation. These are not absolute temperatures, but changes from the norm for each area. The data reflect how much warmer or cooler each region was compared to a base period of 1951 to 1980. The global mean surface air temperature for that period was 
14 degrees Celsius, 57 degrees Fahrenheit, with an uncertainty of several tenths of a degree. It would be interesting for them to list how many tenths of a degree, given that the overall change they're claiming is 1.9 degrees Fahrenheit. How many is several? How many is several tenths of a degree? Are we talking four, five, six, even five tenths of a degree would be a quarter of the overall change they claim has been experienced in the temperature of the earth since 1880. A quarter of it makes kind of a big difference, really. Oh, by the way, can we just pause for a moment? Let me encourage you to think about not just how long people have been recording temperatures across the planet, but also how we have been recording temperatures across the planet, how that's changed over time. These are very relevant, very pertinent details, not at all trivial. What was I saying back in Deuteronomy 29 about the things that are secret belonging to Yahweh our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. When it comes to understanding how warm the planet is, if you have a politician on the left who wants the Green New Deal, but they're smuggling in all of this Marxist re-engineering, overhauling of society in the name of combating climate change, not just for the United States, but for the world, right? They want a one world government that combats climate change, that has the power, the authority, the tools to monitor, but also the mechanisms to be able to enforce what they require, what they mandate, what they prohibit. When they make a claim about the earth being hotter than it's been in 12,000 years or some thing like that. The first question you have to ask is, how do you know how warm it was 12,000 years ago? How would you have any idea how warm it was 12,000 years ago? For that matter, how would you have any idea how warm it was 1,200 years ago? Especially when what we're talking about in the span of time from 1880 to the present is two degrees Fahrenheit. Let me just level with you and say this feels already within the first three paragraphs, this feels like a shell game. It feels manipulative. And personally, my view is this feels like it's very manipulative because it is very manipulative. Continuing on at NASA, the image below shows global temperature anomalies in 2022, which tied for the fifth warmest year on record, which is interesting. Tied for the fifth is to say, are they so anomalous? Tied for the fifth? That sounds fairly normative, actually. At what point, how many do you need? At what point do you say, eh, it's pretty much what it is, right? The past nine years, they write, have been the warmest years since modern record keeping began in 1880. All right, now let's pause again. Let's think about how long a span that is. That's 150 years. So out of 150 years for a data set, nine years, the most recent nine years, are the warmest. What if the next nine years go right back down? What will they say then? If they're committed to a agenda, 
if they have staked their reputations, if they have already spooled up the political machine, the cultural engagement apparatus, the consensus factory to combat this thing, if in the next nine years the temperature drops down significantly, supposing it would or supposing it might, supposing it could, which presumably they would agree, those scientists, those politicians, those corporate heads, those investors who have thrown in their lot with combating climate change, seeing it as not just real, but significant and principally caused by human activity and dangerous. What will they say? What will they say? Whatever they have done to that point, when it reverses, they can say, ah, see, it's a good thing that we stopped using quite so much in the way of fossil fuels. It's a good thing that we started using renewable energy sources. It's a good thing that we pursued carbon neutrality, but it's not enough, right? Just as quickly as it's come down, it can go right back again if we don't maintain vigilance. And so long and short of it, this is not going away anytime soon. But continuing on, as the maps show, global warming does not mean temperatures rise everywhere at every time by the same rate, temperatures might rise five degrees in one region and drop two degrees in another. I would add, they might rise two degrees in one region and drop five degrees in another. Not a trivial point when we're talking about the subtle messaging cues that you're supposed to be catching, the insinuations that are hypothetical and they're not statements of fact. They're just that, speculative, for example, and they stem from very easily what someone expects to find, what someone expects to see in the data sets. For instance, exceptionally cold winters in one place might be balanced by extremely warm winters in another part of the world. Generally, warming is greater over land than over the oceans because water is slower to absorb and release heat, thermal inertia. Warming may also differ substantially within specific land masses and ocean basins. In the animation at the top of the page and in the bar chart below, the years from 1880 to 1939 tend to be cooler then level off by the 1950s. Decades within the base period, 1951 to 1980, do not appear particularly warm or cold because they are the standard against which other years are measured. Now let's just pause there for a moment, okay? Let's pause there for a moment to appreciate what's being stated. Between 1951 and 1980 is when they have established the baseline. And we see that there is before 1950, significantly cooler temperatures by their own data set. And then what do we see after 1980, from 1980 to the present? And by the way, the scaling is critically important here. If the scaling on the upper range is 1.00 degrees Celsius, and on the lower end, negative 0.5, we're talking about a swing one way or the other of 1.5 degrees Celsius, actually, by their own charts. The scaling doesn't show 2 degrees or 1.9 degrees. The scaling of their own chart shows the lowest temperatures, the lowest temperature years in the mid-1900s, and then one spike downward about 
the middle of the 1910s. But again, the limit of this range, the scaling on this chart is negative 0.5. So we're talking about variation between negative 0.5 and 1.0 measured against the 1950s to 1980s average. Wherever you put your point of reference, how do you know that that point of reference is the ideal? And oh, by the way, in case it's not obvious, when you put that point of reference as what you're going to measure against, and you say, this is what it is, who's to say decades from now, future generations aren't going to be looking back at your point of reference and saying, it's as silly as you're now saying the point of reference was for people in the early 1900s and the 1910s. It's an arbitrary point of reference, particularly when you realize we're talking 150 years of meaningful temperature data collection. What would this chart look like if temperature had been gathered, the temperature data had been gathered in exactly the same way, in exactly the same places over the previous 150-year period? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, if we're thinking year to year, most times, and then the data scientists, the climate scientists, the really smart people who are funded by the very wealthy people, <laughs> the very influential and powerful people, if the data scientists are at most working with a scale of 150 years, any individual year as a proportion to the whole ends up amounting to, at present, three quarters of 1%. So one particular year, if it gets hotter, if it gets cooler by a few tenths of a degrees Celsius, in the grand scheme of things, the longer we go, the smaller a percentage share of the overall data set that represents, at the end of the day, we're still dealing with a rather arbitrary point of reference. Why 1950 to 1980 as the point of reference? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, very simply, it's because that span of decades lies smack dab in the middle of 1880 and 2020. It lies smack dab in the middle, and therefore, it's a median, actually. So that's the median. That's the middle period on the chart. But then how do we know that that's meaningful as far as making a moral case against fossil fuels or people being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it, people having a high standard of living. How do you know that the median here is so important? Well, what they assume is because we've been collecting data, therefore, this data is more relevant than the data that we don't have. And that has some validity and there's a certain necessity to it. Again, going back to Deuteronomy 29, the things that are secret belong to Yahweh our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. That doesn't have a one-to-one -one application with regards to climate science, particularly climate science that pursues carbon neutrality and zero human impact on the environment. But, 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 if you're thinking in terms of this being a competing ideology and worldview and something like a cult, something like a new religion or a part of a new religion wherein 
There's a procedure for penance. There's a idea of what sin is. And the consequences of sin are going to be apocalyptic. And then you pay for indulgences. You buy indulgences from the new clerisy, the men in the white lab coats. Why do they wear white lab coats? In a materialistic sense, it's very similar to a priest wearing his robes investment. And the equivalent of Deuteronomy chapter 29's last verse, verse 29, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the equivalent for these people is the data that we have since we started recording the data is the most important data, and that's what we will deal with. But then just like when we're approaching the biblical text as Christians, we should have humility before the data, if you will, these scientists and these coalitions of scientistic, which is not the same thing as scientific, but these scientistic, positivistic, materialistic folks, these coalitions should be approaching their own data sets with humility. The pronouncements are dire for people who do not enjoy a high standard of living, but they're trying to work and earn and provide and protect for themselves, for their families, for their friends, for their communities. The consequences here are extraordinarily dire. And if this is a false gospel, who's going to pay for it? Who's going to own it? Well, quite simply, if we can't get the people who are pushing for carbon neutrality to stop it already, to stop trying to seize everything that belongs to us, if we can't get them to stop aiming for this great reset, Agenda 2030, you will own nothing and be happy. Look it up. I'm not reading between the lines. That's literally what the lines say. Just read the lines. The people who want to take everything that you own, put you on a digital currency, make you eat the bugs, and remote control your thermostat in the summer and in the winter to what they want, what they will require, because you're on solar now, you're on wind, you're on hydro. If those people are wrong and we can't stop them, who's going to pay for it? We're going to pay for it. Put simply, consider a article over at the Epoch Times from just yesterday. Energy industry fears White House will declare COVID-like climate emergency. Jack Phillips reports, some energy industry groups are expressing concerns that the White House will declare a COVID-19-like emergency, but for the climate instead. Quote, they're leaning to that direction, U.S. Oil and Gas Association President Tim Stewart told Just the News in an article published on July 30th. Quote, if you grant the president's emergency powers to declare a climate emergency, it's just like COVID, end quote. An emergency declaration on the climate could give the president, quote, vast and unchecked authority to shut down everything from communications to infrastructure, end quote, said Mr. Stewart who's been a critic of the Biden administration. Infrastructure around water and electricity could be affected by such a decision, he said. Quote, they can literally do exactly what they did in COVID, Mr. Stewart said. Quote, if you disagree with the climate emergency, speech can be shut down. We really need to be paying attention to that because that power could be extended indefinitely until the climate emergency is over. Who knows how long that would last, end quote. The White House press office didn't respond by press time to a request by the Epoch Times for comment about whether the administration might be preparing such a declaration. President Joe Biden and other administration officials have said that the United States and the world are in the midst of a, quote, climate crisis. 
and have used language describing it as an emergency. So far, Mr. Biden has stopped short of declaring an emergency, although some Democrats and environmental groups have pushed the idea. About 60 congressional Democrats recently backed legislation known as the, quote, Climate Emergency Act of 2021, sponsored by Rep. Earl Blumenauer, Democrat from Oregon, that would require the Biden administration to make a climate-related emergency declaration. Last week, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres released an alarmist message saying that, quote, the era of global warming has ended, the era of global boiling has arrived, end quote, using adjectives that include terrifying. Mr. Guterres said U.N. member states must, quote, turn a year of burning heat into a year of burning ambition, end quote. A number of legacy media outlets, including the Los Angeles Times, have floated proposals such as purposefully implementing an, quote, occasional blackout, end quote, to, quote, help solve climate change, end quote. A Guardian article published last week calls on the Biden administration to, quote, declare a climate emergency and states that it, quote, must do so now, end quote. Now, let's just pause for a moment and let's appreciate that none of this is conspiracy theory. The people who are on about the climate out in the open, very publicly, with the largest microphones, the biggest cameras, paying attention to them, all of the networks that have their news stations and which NewsGuard would give high ratings to, giving favorable coverage, you can verify what is being claimed here in the Epoch Times very easily. And I'm reading from NASA's own website All of this is very easily verifiable, and it's not at all a conspiracy theory. And as a matter of fact, just last week, I was supposed to be doing testing on some PLC and HMI programming with Signet, which is the SCADA system, supervisory control and data acquisition down in Platteville, Colorado. And we barely got any testing done for one full day because the power kept flicking on and off. And was the power going out because of a problem on the utility side? Was the power going out because something in the building is misbehaving, say the air conditioning system? That has yet to be determined. But what's concerning is I have friends who work in electric utility companies here in Colorado who are telling me we have perfectly good, in fact, best in the country, arguably best in the world, fossil fuel fired power plants in Colorado that are being decommissioned. Why? Because they run on fossil fuels. What's replacing them? Unreliable, but so-called renewable energy, solar, wind, hydro. What will the effect be? Much more expensive electricity and therefore a much lower standard of living, much less economic growth, a much less comfortable quality of life, or rolling blackouts, or both actually probably, let's be honest, rolling blackouts when it's the hottest in the summer, when it's the coldest in the winter. The electricity will just click off. Whatever you were doing, especially if you work remote from a computer, whatever you were doing, you're not doing it now. You're going to have to wait for the power to come back on, probably. And that's exactly what happened last week. And the folks who are on about climate change They say that as a comparative cost, that's pennies. But 
they also believe that the world will be destroyed because we're burning fossil fuels. They think that the world will be destroyed because human beings are having an impact on the environment. This is very deranged thinking about man. If you ask me, this is actually a reprobate mind. It's unreasonable. It's incapable of being reasoned with in too many cases. There's a hysterical quality to the claims that are being made that could not be more hyperbolic. Literally, they're telling us that the world is going to come to an end if we don't drop everything, and I mean that, drop everything. Stop getting married, stop having kids, stop eating meat, stop using electricity, stop driving cars, stop working if that's what it takes, stop living, stop breathing, stop being alive if that's what it takes. This is deranged. This is a reprobate mind. This is very similar actually to a lot of the old pagan thinking, which is to say also that this is the doctrine of demons. This is satanic. Conservation of the environment, not satanic, right? Be a good steward. Be a good steward of what God has created and entrusted to you and your descendants. But again, this is the difference between conservatives and liberals. The liberals who follow in the footsteps of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Michel Foucault and Karl Marx, those liberals, they want socialism, ultimately. They want communism, ultimately. They want man living in a state of nature, ultimately. So they'll preserve the state of nature as they see it, whatever they think the state of nature is. The conservative is going to say, I'm going to preserve what has been passed down to me so that I can, in turn, pass it down to my children. But then these folks who are on about how we generate our electricity, how we transport ourselves, what the goal of economic activity should be, how we relate to our environment, the people who are forecasting the end of life on earth as we know it, unless we give all of our wealth and power over to them, unless we surrender all of our natural rights, all of our God-given rights, all of our constitutional rights and protections to them, those people will not rest. They will not rest until it is all under their control and all under their surveillance to ensure compliance with climate change regulations very neatly turns into 100% surveillance to enforce communistic redistribution of wealth, which I think is actually more the point. That is more of what is driving this for the people who are the most passionate about it. These things don't just seem to coincidentally go together. They go together very intuitively because they come from the same place and they work together very neatly to scare most people, unfortunately, into either silence or compliance. Just like the COVID emergency, so-called, was being talked about before it was even lifted, the lockdowns, the mandates, crackdowns, it was being talked about by Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau as being something of a template for how, once it was over, they were going to deal with climate change or approach or tackle climate change. All the lessons learned, he said, publicly would be applied to the problem of climate change soon. Just like that, well, so also, when, not if, when they apply these 
lessons learned to climate change, the next thing will be now that we have the whole globe under surveillance and we have converted all of the world's people into citizens of a global state, now we will put all of these tools to use for radical wealth redistribution. But then that'll be of a piece. That's of a piece with this so-called environmental justice. Briefly, before I run and leave, because I need to here shortly, check out a piece over at The Blaze, published by The Blaze TV staff, July 24th, with the title, This is How Political Cults and Conspiracy Theories Are Born. Uh, This is episode six of Zero Hour, a podcast hosted by James Polos, with a guest, Daryl Cooper, who is co-host of the Unraveling podcast with Jocko Willink. Check this out. This is very interesting. It's about an hour long, an hour, one minute, 10 seconds long. Basically, what they're dealing with is this idea that we've been talking about, say, for instance, in relation to UAPs. What's the one thing everybody seems to agree about with regards to these UAP hearings that Congress has been having? publicly. Everybody agrees that our country has been lied to or is being lied to by our government. If you believe that the UAP's business is just a distraction from scandals and other things that you should be paying attention to, well, then you believe that our government is capable of misleading, brainwashing, lying to, manipulating all of us about what the real intentions, their real designs are. And if you believe that the government has been lying to us, about UAPs and they've known for decades and they've been harming people, even killing people to keep this a secret that we have alien craft or some such like that. Well, then again, we go right back to you believe that your government is capable of lying to everybody, manipulating its citizenry, brainwashing its citizenry. So either way, right? Either way, it's half a dozen of one, six of the other. Either way, we all agree that our government is capable of lying to us. In fact, We expect our government to be lying to us and manipulating us. These two, Daryl Cooper and James Polos, talk about what the result of that has been. The result of that collective distrust of our government, which is merited, especially when you go back to how things were handled during the Cold War, the result of that collective distrust is it's so easy for conspiracy theories to find fertile ground in the minds and hearts of people on all sides of the political divide. It's so easy for conspiracy theories to be credible because of how incredible our corporate news media is, how incredible or lacking in credibility our government is. We don't trust that they in the media, they in our government will tell us the truth. And so we expect that the truth is something else other than what they've told us. But again, again, just as a frame of reference here, let's return to Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, which is to say God knows what the real story is. And that's good to remember. That is really good to remember. God knows. And I would say, and I'll say this again and again and again, call me what you will. If we read his word, we understand human nature. We understand what's in the heart and mind of man, what man is capable of doing, particularly anytime God says to not do things. (laughs) 
we should understand God telling us to not do things is to say that needed to be said. You know, it's like myself as a parent, when I tell my children to do something or to not do something sometimes, I'm like, man, I never thought that was something I would ever have to explain or tell that we don't do this, right? We don't do this thing and why, right? But it works just the same with God's relationship to us. He wouldn't be telling us to not do certain things if we didn't do those things. He wouldn't be telling us to do certain things if we faithfully, consistently, reliably would do those things. And even the fact that he's telling us to not sin, but to be righteous, or when he's giving us corrections for folly, even just that is to say, we need his guidance, we need his direction, and we're not going to make it on our own. But one thing about this podcast episode, which you should check out, it's interesting. I haven't finished it yet. 20 minutes in, it's a very interesting back and forth. I think there's a little bit of double-mindedness in saying, no, you shouldn't trust your government, but also people who question their government, disagree with their government, are quite probably crazy people and conspiracy theorists. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, which was it, right? Is there double-mindedness here because you're trying to behave in a way that's not going to get you destroyed yourself? You should check out the podcast, but let me just say this. Conspiracy theory is a too easy dismissive for someone who's saying that a bad thing is happening. Conspiracy theory is a too easy dismissal. But, 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 that does not mean that every speculation, every theory we might have to explain what's really going on with some situation that we're not getting the facts from our corporate media or from our government on, it doesn't mean that every speculation is sound. And again, this is why it's so critically important that we be reasonable, we be humble, we recognize that there are categories for knowledge. There's the stuff that we know that we know. As Christians, that would be whatever God has given us in his word. These things are given to us and to our children forever. They belong to us that we may do all the words of this law. There are also things that we don't know that we don't know. There are secrets that God only knows that we have no clue about. And then finally, there are things that we know we don't know. There are things that we know that we don't know. And we have to be careful with that category of things that we know that we don't know, that we put the right things into that category. I would say some of the reason why we have so much political corruption in this country is because we've put things into the category of we know that we don't know, which actually should be in the category of we know that we know. Why? Because God said. I think that's where some of the conspiracy theory dismissals come from is We don't want to know that we know that thing because then what do we do with it, right? In verse 29 of Deuteronomy 29, it's very clear. It's a straight shot from, you know these things that have been revealed to you and they belong to you. So what? So that you can act on them, so that you can behave like it, so you can live like it. You can live like you know these things. But then that's the flip side, right? That's why so often... An alternative theory to what is being presented as the official narrative is going to be dismissed as conspiracy theory, and there won't be a second thought about it except to feel bad for you or be upset with you, because if there's nowhere to go with it, if there's nothing that can be done about it, there's no practical outlet that is going to be beneficial, it's only going to be cost, then it would be better if we put that into the category of things that we know we don't know, because then 
we can move on, right? We can move on to the immediate concerns of what we consider to be our business. Now, I present all of this to you, not to scare you, not to unnerve you, not to discourage you, not to freak you out. I present all of this to you because when we're dealing with a campaign to globalize the decision about what is produced, whether food, clothing, housing, electricity, the campaign to globalize that is your business and it pertains to your business and it has to be accounted for in your plans for the future or else you're going to be caught flat-footed. And if it does happen, if God permits it to happen, we should say, if it does happen, well, then you're going to have to know what to do about it. And you're going to have to know what to live like and how to operate and how to function. You don't want to put it off until the day comes where you're like, wow, this is global communism right here, social credit scores and the works. Ugh, what do I do now? No, no. Think now. And if there's an opportunity, humanly speaking, by God's grace to stop it, well, then that would be great, right? That would be super, super fantastic. We should want that. We should work towards that. But if it can't be stopped, you should still know that it's coming so that you can be wise. The wise see trouble coming and they hide themselves. Figure out how you can hide yourself without being disobedient to God. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.